my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here. Okay, before jumping into today's episode, I want to let you know about a series of reflections that I put together that serves as an overview to the essential themes of yin yoga. This series is based on many of the most common questions I receive from students in my training programs. And this series is for free to all new subscribers to my newsletter. Just sign up for my email newsletter so that I can email them to you. To do that, go to joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And as a bonus, you will get access to two practice videos, one sequence that focuses on the spine and the other on the hips. I'm very excited to share this material with you, my listeners, and I hope that the videos and reflections will continue to support your practice and understanding of yin yoga. Okay, in today's episode, I bring you part three of four of my interview with Dr. Timothy McCall. Timothy is the medical editor for Yoga Journal and author of the bestseller, Yoga as Medicine. A few years ago, Timothy was diagnosed with an oral squamous cell cancer that had spread to his lymph nodes. The cancer and his path through treatment to a cure is the subject of Timothy's new book, Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. Now, in the first two parts of the interview, Timothy and I spoke about how he navigated his cancer treatment using Eastern and Western modalities, and especially how he implemented a fasting protocol during chemotherapy. If you missed those episodes, please go back and check them out. In today's episode, we discuss how to think about medicine from a holistic and from a reductionistic perspective. In this conversation, we speak about the problems inherent in trying to evaluate the efficacy of alternative therapies from a reductionistic model. And we also discuss the problems of implementing alternative therapies with a reductionistic mindset. These are topics that are near and dear to my heart, and I really look forward to sharing these with you now. Timothy's new book, Saving My Neck, is a wonderful memoir of his experience through cancer. And if our conversation inspires you, there's a link for purchase in the show notes of this episode. And without further ado, I once again bring you Dr. Timothy McCall. Okay, Timothy, so one of the things that you cover in your book on your journey through cancer and your healing from cancer uh, called Saving My Neck is that you, one of the things I got from it was that you really lay out for the reader a way to think about different kinds of treatments and different ways of evaluating the efficacy of certain treatments. And one of the things that I often am confronted by as an acupuncturist is what I would call a conventional medicine hubris against anything alternative that if you're like, I'm, I'm essentially practicing um, voodoo by putting people like pins and people, I might as well put any pins and dolls, but I'm basically putting pins and people doing a live voodoo. Um, <laughs> and there, there's this view that like, you know, there's no studies that, that have uh, validated the efficacy of acupuncture to certain standards and uh, therefore it's worthless. But you really, you cast 
that kind of hubris in a different light in the book. And I, I want to kind of tease out or unpack your analysis of different ways of evaluating treatment efficacy. Um, and there's, a, I think there's a chapter in your book on evidence-based medicine. You call it eminence-based medicine. <laughs> and there's also a chapter on, on sham acupuncture. So I think both of those would be interesting things to talk about. But what, what do you think? I know this is a theme you've worked on for a number of years, but what is, what is the major blind spot in evidence-based medicine? Well, basically, um, let me put it back to my own story of going through cancer. Yeah. So basically, I'm going to take conventional treatment, albeit a somewhat modified version of what was recommended to me. But I want to complement it with as many holistic things like acupuncture and body work and Ayurveda and yoga and things like that as I can. But the reality is that almost every single thing I was considering was from the standpoint of medical, modern medical science lacking in data. There were no good studies. Now, evidence-based medicine, which is a dominant paradigm in modern healthcare, insists that you need to have scientific support before recommending any medical intervention. And I kind of lay out a science-based critique of that way of thinking. So for example, not only do you need to have evidence that acupuncture is effective, for example, you need to demonstrate that it's effective for the particular condition that the person has. So now something like acupuncture or yoga therapy or Ayurveda that could be used for theoretically any medical condition is supposed to have the same kind of level of evidence that a Lipitor has for lowering cholesterol and preventing heart disease. It's supposed to have that for each of the you know 1,000 medical diagnoses there are. So we have a system that is totally not a level playing field, where most research is funded by industry. When I was a medical student back in the 1980s, most research was funded by the government. But now it's almost all funded by industry, which means the manufacturer of Lipitor funds the studies of Lipitor. And they invest a lot of money in getting those studies to generate the level of evidence that's needed. There's no, now, conflict, some, no conflict of interest there. <laughs> well, and right. And, and in fact, there is, there is good scientific evidence that indeed you get what you pay for, and that when a, when a study is funded by a manufacturer, that study is much more likely to find that the product is effective and safe than a study that's uh, independently funded. So, so, so that, that research is not as reliable. That's the first thing. The second thing is that something like acupuncture or yoga there's no industry. There's no one who can patent a product, corner the market, make a billion dollars, and then put 100 million of that into research. There's no industry that supports these things. So this is completely not a level playing field. So not only was there no evidence that most of the things I wanted to try were effective, there were no studies that had been done. It had simply never been investigated. So, and, you know, 
Yoga has been shown to be effective for more than 100 medical conditions. I have a thing up on my website, 101 conditions that have been shown in medical studies to be benefited by yoga, okay, with all the, with all the footnotes and everything. And, but but um, my cancer was not one of them. There are no studies of, you know, HPV-related oropharyngeal carcinoma, no studies of yoga. I can tell that yoga is helping me. I can tell that Ayurveda is helping me. Am I supposed to wait till these studies come out when they may never come out? And and by the way, who's going to pay for a study of fasting? You know, the only, the only one who profits, as I say in the book, the only one who profits when you fast is maybe you. Because everyone else is losing money when you're fasting. Right. Well, there's also there's the there's the study there's the lack of financial incentive around the study, but there's also limitations in the 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 way of doing a study, which in the methodology in the methodology that gets into this issue of what you mentioned already, holism versus reductionism, and 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 I want to put those on the map next to conventional medicine and alternative medicine because sure. Because a lot of times what can happen is people think that just because it's something something's an alternative, it's de facto or it's automatically holistic, and that's not necessarily the case. So it, it, what I kind of want to have you spell out is how look at how it's actually not possible to do kind of the, the, the gold standard of study or double-blind randomized trial on a holistic system because the very mechanisms of how a holistic system work don't um, yield to the kind of reductionistic study right. scope that uh, so, so, the, the, so, the, the conventional world wants. So let's back up and just for the sake of listeners who may not be fully down on the difference between holism and reductionism and why this is so crucial, let me just back up. So I think we've made a fundamental mistake in, in the way we look at healthcare and society. We see conventional science-based medicine on one hand, and we see alternative medicine, complementary alternative medicine, integrative medicine, whatever you want to call it, on the other hand. Two different camps. I don't think that distinction is philosophically defensible. It's kind of arbitrary sometimes which camp a thing gets put in. So I, you know, as I say in the book, if a chiropractor adjusts your back, that's alternative medicine. If an osteopath adjusts your back, that's conventional medicine. That makes no sense. Okay. So what reductionism is, is reducing the complex sea of factors that can influence a disease and homing in on one thing. In the case of heart disease, it might be cholesterol. Homing in on one thing and then often with a drug, a kind of biomechanical hammer, trying to move that factor enough to affect the whole disease. Okay, That's the basic model of reductionism. And it's a great model, and it works in a lot of things, and, it was the, and it's the basis of many helpful conventional medical treatments. I don't have a problem with reductionism. I just think we need to understand what reductionism is. We have to understand that it tends to cause more side effects, and it tends to become less effective over time. Those are inherent in reductionist approaches. Okay, holism, on the other hand, is that word whole, body, mind, spirit, environment, culture, psychology, anything 
that can go in. And what we're trying to do with holistic remedies is figure out where each individual patient is imbalanced and then with our various treatments, move them in the direction of greater balance. And so my critique of the studies that evidence-based medicine, modern medicine insists on for studying something like acupuncture is kind of using the model of evidence-based medicine that's pretty good for comparing drug A, drug B, which one's more effective, which one has more side effects. You know, give give the same dose to everybody in group A, give the other dose to people in B, and they can have a control group, whatever. This is the kind of methodology, a standardized protocol. Everyone in one wing of the study gets the same treatment. Okay, so now they want to study acupuncture. So what do they do? They say, okay, let's study migraine headaches. So then let's ask acupuncturists, which are the points that you needle for people with migraine headaches? And then we'll design a study that the people in group A get needled in all those points and the people in group B get needled in some fake points or don't get needled at all or whatever the yeah, control yeah. group is. I got to interrupt you one just one second because yeah. I'm, I'm hearing my, my acupuncture theory lecturer from graduate school Please, I wanna... shouting in my ear. <laughs> like, well, let's ask acupuncturist what points would you use for migraine his his booming voice would be saying something like acupuncture is not a push button system right right and you, just because you have a migraine doesn't mean everybody would get the same three or four points needled and and, and that's that and that is exactly the point no pun intended. What, what, what a good holistic healer does, acupuncturist, Ayurveda practitioner, yoga therapist, is rather than treating the Western medical diagnosis, we evaluate the person using the techniques, pulse diagnosis, interview, etc., that we have to assess states of imbalance. And then based on the imbalances we detect, then select the treatment. Okay, right, so and, and, and just to put it in the context of Chinese medicine, which is often of interest to listeners to this podcast, you know, something like migraines, those patterns of imbalance that cause the migraine, there could be five to 12 broad common patterns of imbalance that all manifest with that particular symptom. But right. depending on what the pattern is, the holistic practitioner is going to address address it at the level of the, of the pattern, right? not on the symptom. The symptom will correct itself once the pattern of imbalance is addressed. But the, the, the actual points that get used can be very different from person to person, which is, I think, what you're getting at. And, and not only that, if you've got this kind of one-size-fits-all approach that the studies insist on so that it's scientific, you're going to have some people who you're actually giving exactly the wrong treatment to. Who, who, you know, some people are not going to get the optimal treatment because you're not treating the imbalance they have. Some people are going to have the opposite of what's more common, and you could actually worsen them with the treatment. So, built in to every one of these protocols, studying acupuncture, yoga, Ayurveda, etc., is this insistence of a standardized protocol based on the Western medical diagnosis, which is simply not the way good holistic healers work. And 
It's likely to be counterproductive for some people, less effective for others, right on for some. But the net effect is you're going to systematically underestimate the effectiveness of every holistic intervention you test when you insist on that methodology. Yeah. Now, a better way to test, which evidence-based medicine generally doesn't like very well, is what's known as outcome studies. You bring a group of people in with migraine treatment, you have the acupuncturist assess them based on what the acupuncturist finds. He or she comes up with a protocol for the person. They monitor their response to the protocol. They come in for a second visit. They monitor them again. Oh, now it's a slightly different pattern of imbalance. Now we're going to change the points we needle, and we're going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to have you add this dietary intervention. You know, whatever, whatever it is. The point is, we're in holistic medicine responding to what we see, which is ever-changing, context-dependent, and by the way, subject to feedback. We detect this imbalance. I think this particular set of interventions ought to correct that imbalance, but it doesn't. Okay, there's more information. Based on that information, we may need to change our tact. And that's the kind of thing that holism allows you to do, which outcome studies theoretically could allow you to do. Because in an outcome study, you just randomize. Half the people get acupuncture, half the people get something else, maybe just to control, whatever it is. And then you simply, at the end of the time, compare the results of the two groups. And, and that is, I think, the way we need to assess holistic remedies, but it isn't being done. And in fact, if you try to get a yoga therapy study done, where instead of just doing the same 12 asana for everyone with low back pain, which is just stupid if you really understand what yoga therapy is about, you can't get your study funded. Because if you don't have a, a study protocol that has a standardized approach that's going to be used for every patient, it's judged as methodologically weak, and you don't get the money. And by the way, not just from the government, you don't get it from foundations either. No, no play the stacked deck game against holistic medicine, you don't get to do your study. Right. So it, it also makes me worry then, listening to you, that it makes me worry that the studies that are being done could actually... The results, even if they're positive, could be could be absorbed into a, a way, a mindset of thinking by the industry that then starts to regulate what the person can be the, that the clinician is able to do based on these 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 kinds of studies that are you're, you're already hearing in the world of yoga therapy, clinically documented sequence, mm -hmm. you know, those the sequence of poses that some study found to be effective. You know, when I first got into yoga therapy coming out of medicine, that's the way I thought yoga therapy worked. Because I heard, oh, this is the pose you do when you're having your period, or this is the pose you do if you're having sinus problems or whatever. But then when I actually observed, you know, Mr. Deskachar work and BKS Angar worked, that's not what they did. Well, you actually make you make this observation in the book, and I, I tease it out because it relates to kind of how I started. And I think many people come into this world maybe from this perspective, which is that 
I saw Light on Yoga when I was in college, I think. And, the, and as you point out in the book, in the back of Light on Yoga, there are these remedial um, sequences meant to address or meant to, meant, to, meant to fix or heal a whole variety of different kinds of conditions. Um, and uh, as another critic recently observed in the past guest on the podcast, Matthew Remsky, there's actually no scientific um, credibility for those sequences. There's just sort of things that he put together with um, a, a kind of conviction that they would they would work. But you, you, you and, and you know what? It may not even be that he had a conviction that they would work in particular. You have to understand, publishers love cookbooks. Yes. They they want to know what you do for this and what you do for that. Because what I observed after having, you know, red light on yoga and seeing the 45 poses or whatever the heck it was for migraine headache, starting with headstand, which by the way, you got to be like pretty darn good yoga therapist to get away with putting your migraine patients into headstand. As you, as you, you know, like because Anger apparently could pull that off. I've heard stories of him doing it, but I wouldn't do it. Right. That's that's, you know, so. But the, but the thing you said when you mentioned the book, though, is that in observing BKS Anger work at work in the medical right. classes in Pune, he would never he didn't do any. He didn't follow any of those prescriptions. Oh, what he did was exactly what we've been talking about. He looked at the student in front of him, and based on what he saw and what he observed, he came up with a sequence. And I saw many occasions where Angar, who you know was famous for having this like X-ray vision. I mean, the, the guy had like a built-in MRI machine. He could see subtleties of anatomy that were you know, I was a physician. I'd had a lot of training in anatomy, and what he could see was just blowing my mind compared to what I could see. And 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 this I've seen in yoga teachers. Good yoga teachers really learn to see the body in a way that doctors simply can't. Okay, but but in any case, he's great at looking at the body. He's knows the people. Some of these people in the medical classes really well. Some of them have been coming for a month or two months or 10 years. He knows these patients really well. And yet, very often, he'd call out the name of a pose he'd want the student put in. The attendants would run around seeing who could be the first one to present him with the bolster or whatever was needed for the patient. And they'd get the person all set up in the pose. He'd take one look and say, no, take her out. So it's like, here's this guy, this master yoga therapist, and even he, before he sees the patient in the pose, can't really tell if it's going to work or not. It's only when he sees her in the pose. Maybe her breathing gets strained. Maybe she starts to space out. Maybe her eyes glaze over. I don't know what he was seeing, but he was seeing something that told him no. Even though I thought this was going to work, it's not going to work. And I thought to myself, well, if that's the case, if he even he doesn't know with a patient he knows really well what's going to work until he actually sees the person doing it, how can any canned sequence from a book or a YouTube channel or whatever really be what good yoga therapists actually do? Right, right. And there's a lot, a lot in there that I want to kind of come back to um i mean if, if at very best i think the can sequence or the the, the the set prescribed sequence for a particular condition 
um, is just a departure point. And right. it's you try it and then you, you, you adjust it, you tweak it, you take things out, you add things in. And I think this is the piece that I, I'm involved in teaching, training teachers, but I, you know, in conversations I have with them and conversations I have with my own uh, acupuncture clients, um, people want to know that there's this, there's this vulnerability. People really want to know that what they're going to do is going to bring about a specific result. And they, in, sen- in a sense, just need to follow the rule. Like the intervention becomes a rule that you, f- you do it and then you'll get from X to Y and all will be good. But as you're pointing out, Iyengar and most holistic practitioners are going to be making adjustments to what they're doing. And it's based on, in a certain sense, trial and error. It's definitely informed by experience and theory and knowledge. But at the end of the day, in the face of a living human being, there's, there's adjustments that are being made that um, don't fit a, a narrow parameter of prescription. And, and, and the thing is, what happens when you really practice something like yoga in a dedicated way for years, you become much more tuned in to your felt sense in your own body. And when that comes in your own body, in your teaching, you also more and more be able to see your students in a more and more refined fashion that makes you able to see these subtleties about what's working and what's not working in a way a less experienced person simply can't see. I couldn't see some of the stuff that I ever could see. Maybe today I could see it because I'm 20 years farther down the pike and, and, I've, and I've gone that much deeper in my own practice and gone that much deeper in my own teaching. So, so I see more. So it's, 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 it's not just, I mean, there is an element of subjectivity to it for sure, but there's also this kind of refined perceptive ability that really good uh, holistic healers take. So, you know, I've been doing pulse diagnosis in Ayurveda it's about 12 years since I learned it. And, you know, I'm better at it this year than I was last year. Yeah. Well, pulse diagnosis in any system is Chinese or uh, Ayurvedic is it's a lifelong it's, practice. It, and of course, in, in Ayurveda, they would say more than one life. More than one. <laughs> um, you, you bring up uh, this related to this whole theme. Um, you bring up uh a situation or, a, or a, a phrase called alternative reductionism right. where, um, and I, I may get you to talk about this more because I, th- I see this a lot in alternative people, people that are open and interested in alternative therapies unwittingly, it seems like fall into a reductionistic way of thinking about it. And I want to see if you can a, talk about it, but also, um, give some suggestions or ways of helping people prevent to prevent them from falling okay. into that that okay. that that lane. So, so, so basically, this goes back to this fundamental misinterpreting the two schools of medicine as being conventional modern medicine, scientific medicine, and complementary alternative medicine. These are the two things. That is a bogus way of thinking about it. What you need to understand is that there are holistic approaches that are multifactorial, and there are, you know, reductionist approaches that target one specific thing, and in the case of modern medicine, often some biochemical pathway or something that we're trying to intervene with. Now, the thing is that 
there is holism in modern medicine. So the field of palliative care or good nursing care, they get into the person's psychology. They talk about spiritual issues even in palliative care, you know, fear of death and all this kind of stuff. They, they're, they're broader in their focus. They're more holistic. They're not as holistic perhaps as what you and I do, but they're in much more in that direction. Okay. And then the other surprise to me when I really started to figure this out about 20 years ago is that alternative medicine is full of what I call alternative reductionism. So you're going to take this particular megadose vitamin or dietary supplement that's designed to tweak some biochemical pathway in the body to cause some desirable result. Okay, so the point is, that's not holism, that's reductionism. Now, because of this false putting holistic treatments in with alternative reductionism, people who like have had good experience with acupuncture and yoga, they tend to be very sympathetic to taking vitamins in very high doses or dietary supplements and maybe 20 of them at one time. But the point is, reductionist treatments are inherently riskier. And they're inherently subject to what's known as tachyphylaxis, which is the gradual diminution in effectiveness over time. At first, one pain pill works, then you need two. At first, one blood pressure medicine's enough, then they need to add one, then they need to add another to, to keep your level down. Uh, you know, the antibiotic works for a while, then the bacteria becomes resistant to it. This is the nature of all reductionist treatments that become less effective over time. And it's also true of dietary supplements and, and vitamins when they're used as preventive medicine. Now, if you have a vitamin deficiency and you're taking a vitamin to just address the deficiency, not taking excessive doses, that's not subject to becoming less effective over time. Same thing for a hormone or a mineral. But if you're taking vitamin C or vitamin E or vitamin D at a, at a high dose for a long period of time, I think there's every reason to worry about diminishing returns and worry about the potential of side effects. So there was a big study done probably 20 years ago where the, when there was really a big range about antioxidants and everyone was taking vitamin C and vitamin E and selenium and all this stuff to try to lower their risk of heart disease and cancer and all that kind of stuff. And so they took a group of patients, heavy smokers, high risk for lung cancer, and they put them on vitamin E pills. And at the end of the study, they, they looked at the results. The people who took the vitamin E had much higher cancer rates mm. than the people who didn't take it. So we think because it's a vitamin, it sounds benign that I can take any dose of it, no worries. It's alternative medicine. It's like yoga. It's like, it's good for you. It's nice. It's natural. You know, it's, and the thing is, many alternative reductionist treatments are not natural. Or certainly, it's not ever natural to take one chemical alone in a high dose. That's reductionism. Now, again, I'm not opposed to reductionism. I'm not opposed to dietary supplements. I'm not opposed to high-dose vitamins in certain instances. But because it's reductionist, you need to understand it's going to have more side effects. It's, it's going to diminish in effectiveness over time. It's more likely to interact with other reductionist treatments. And so particularly if you're taking 20 different supplements, how they all interact, nobody has any idea.
Mm-hmm. Okay, so I just think you need to be careful. And now the other thing to consider is that like the drug industry, the dietary supplement industry, most of the research is funded by industry. Same problems as studying drugs and other things. You may not want The other thing to know is that a lot of the information we learn about drugs from newspapers, the internet, from other people, has been somewhere along the line sullied by marketing stuff, covert marketing. You don't even know that the journalist or the doctor or the nurse or the clerk in the health food store has been lobbied and given information by the person who's selling the thing they're hoping you're going to buy. Mm. Okay? And, and, and so – and people think, well, you know, I read about this supplement on, on the internet. It sounds pretty good. They don't know where that information came from or they don't know if the person who very in a very good spirit is passing that information on has themselves been exposed to tainted information informed by marketing forces. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we did, there's this covert marketing that happens in the world of alternative reductionism that doesn't really happen in holistic medicine. You know, it's it's mom and pop things and, you know, you're not, you know, out there creating a big, you know, thing that's going to get everyone buying your particular thing you're selling. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not how it works. Are there other, I mean, you're speaking about how there's a reductionistic way of thinking around supplementation, like in people maybe taking these high doses of certain vitamins or supplements. Um, do you see this manifesting in non-supplementary ways like in like do you see ways that alternative reductionism is applied to i think we were talking about earlier a little bit but how it's applied to say something like yoga or or meditation or do you have any other examples of that well you know yeah i mean it's just kind of the idea that that more is more you know and 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 the thing is for anything there's a right dose And, and and you know an hour of asana a day over the long term may be great, you know, but it might turn out that for some body types, that three hours of asana a day is too much. Or three hours of the very vigorous type that they may have been exposed to or may have, you know, may have learned from their teachers, that might not be the right one for them. And again, we of course have the notion that this particular sequence that was passed on from the master is the sequence that everyone on the whole planet should be doing. Right. You know, which again, from the perspective of holism is nuts. Yeah. You know, there's no sequence. They, so it's, so we have, we, we fall subject to the reductionism. We also fall subject to the medical model, this problem, this intervention. Right. Right, and that medical model, put simply another way, is just that it's looking for one causal X causing a symptom, and if you can right. find the, that causal X, you 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 deal with that um, and problem solved. And, and even when we actually know the cause, HIV and AIDS, or the HPV virus and the particular cancer I had. You know, we know the cause. That doesn't mean that that's the only cause or that's the only factor that's going to affect your ability to heal. 
Or, and, the, and so, or, the, or multiple conditions that led to that particular cause manifesting as a cancer. Like it, right. it, it need not have gone that way for, for whatever reason. I mean, other, other factors could have come in that could have prevented right. it from occurring. Exactly. So, so, so the point is, even when we know the cause, we don't want to just target that cause, but ideally, holistically seen. You know, I mean, so when I do yoga therapy, I have this model I call SNAPS. I look at someone's structure, their postural habits, their muscle tone. Uh, I look at their nervous system and breathing. I, I, I look at their Ayurvedic balance. I look at their psychology and I look at their spiritual path. And so those are like the five main areas that I carve up the holistic territory in. And then within each of those areas, I look for imbalances and target them regardless of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, now, and I should also just as a caveat say, if someone's not interested in talking about psychology or spirituality, I'm never going to shove that down everyone's throat. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to think that's a pretty angry dude. You know, if that's what I think is going on. Okay, we'll pause the conversation there for now. And in the show notes, I'll leave a link for Timothy's book. In the next and final episode of this series, Timothy and I talk about some of the broader life lessons that he discovered in his recovery from cancer. We look at how an illness, any illness really, can be a moment of opening. It can be an opening to explore lots of unfinished business and the various levels of healing that can occur when we start to open to the things that have been sealed off from us. So as always, I look forward to sharing that episode with you soon. Now as a parting reminder, once again, if you'd like to receive your free access to my Essentials of Yin Yoga program, just head over to my website which is joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. Sign up for my newsletter there and all good things will start to flow your way. Thanks so much for listening today and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.